Hey there, welcome back to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sean Johnson coming to you from the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and today we have a gem of an episode for you. Dave and I sat down with Gary Spence, so I'll give you a quick bio on Gary. Gary is Senior Vice President and Head of Client Engagement for Lincoln's Retirement Plan Services, which means his team is focused on boosting retirement readiness of the more than 1.5 million participants that Lincoln serves. Gary joined Lincoln Financial Group in 1992 and has served in various leadership roles over the past 27 years. He has served as financial advisor, sales manager, and executive leader. Gary received a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Georgia. He has his FINRA Series 7, 24, 6, 63, and 65 licenses. Gary and his wife, Missy, live in Charlotte, North Carolina. They have three children and four grandchildren. So in other words, he's incredibly qualified to be a leader of the financial world. And once you listen to this interview, you're going to be really glad that he is. In this conversation, we talk about living a life of contribution, the resolution passed by the Georgia House of Representatives honoring his mentors, which I believe was the first on the podcast, the job he got cutting lawns that shaped his future, and much, much more. Gary is just a phenomenal human being, really just one of the most genuine people you ever meet. So it's my pleasure to bring you this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Gary Spence. The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at Two Logical. Two Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. Two Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Advisor, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to twological.com. Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Motivational Intelligence Podcast. This is David Naylor, uh, and I'm here with Sean Johnson today. We've we've got a, a very, very incredible gentleman with us today, and it's it's interesting. Over the years, you know, we have an opportunity to to meet uh, a lot of people, but the the gentleman we have with us today, his name's Gary Spence. And prior to meeting Gary, I actually had the opportunity to meet his son and a gentleman who he mentors. So rarely do I get to, you know, meet the you know, the key people in the periphery of somebody's life before I get to meet them. But getting to understand the, the caliber and the quality of those individuals really gave me a wonderful perspective of, of Gary before I had a chance to meet him. And Gary is, uh, he's the senior vice president uh, at Lincoln Financial Services in their retirement plan services division. Incredible gentleman, and you'll very quickly see why in, in the course of our conversation. So, Gary, welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you and Sean today. So, so Gary, when you and I were chatting here a while back, you, you uh, used a term, and it, it, it really stuck with me. You talked about magic moments in life and about how they, they shape us as individuals, you know, in, in ways that really ripple for the balance of our lives. But oftentimes we don't necessarily realize that in the, in the moment. And so I thought it, it would be a cool way to kind of open our conversation today is to talk about one of those magic moments in your life. And so if you would, Share with us, who is Miss Edna 
And tell us a little bit about the difference that she made in your life. Oh, that's that's a, she's a, an amazing story there. But Miss Edna was uh, Miss Edna Norwood. She was our neighbor who lived directly across the street from from me when I grew up. We grew up in a small town in Georgia, and a little mill town. And every house looked almost the same because there were little mill houses. But she lived directly across the street from me on Jefferson Street, and uh, she was a widow. And she had this tiny little house, probably no more than 800 square feet, I would say at the most. But she had a lot that was about an acre. And Miss Edna was someone that we sort of looked after. And as my brother and I got old enough to begin to cut her grass, um, she allowed us to come and cut her grass. And we would go and do that. If you can imagine this, we would cut her entire yard, roughly an acre, for a dollar and 50 cents. <laughs> I know. Exactly. Can't buy a gallon of gasoline for that. So so dad approved. And so I would go to cut Miss Edna's grass. And the way this would work was we would go over there. Actually, my brother and I, we began this process together. We would go over and we would cut her yard. And at the end of the day, my father would come home from work. He, He too worked down in the mill at Hillside Mill. And dad would come home, and the first thing he would do is he'd say, uh, son, he'd always look at me for some reason, I think being the youngest, go grab a lawnmower, let's go look at Miss Edna's yard. But we said, yes, sir, dad, we cut our grass, we did a great job on it, so we would go over there to walk her yard, and, and lo and behold, as any young kids would do, there's always a strand of grass or two that we didn't cut. And dad would make us cut the entire yard again. So we would walk the entire yard with the mower running, and cut her entire yard. And so Ms. Edna became a metaphor for our life, the way we kind of kind of grew up. Everything we did was surrounded around how dad made us take care of her yard. So as we grew oh, over the years, you know, I continued to cut Ms. Edna's yard. And but but every time I would cut it, dad would come home and say, Dad, son, grab a lawnmower, we'd go over to cut a grass. And eventually I got to the point to where dad would say, you know, boys, you did a good job. Did a good job there. However, go get the rake. And we say, sir, he goes, well, go get the rake. We need to, to rake up some of the gravel here came out of a driveway. It's in our grass. We need to rake that, that gravel out of the grass back into the driveway. And we said, well, dad, but she's paying us to cut a grass. He said, son, go get the rake. We'd go and get the rake and we would do that. And lo and behold, the next time we'd cut a grass and he would walk it and he'd say that the grass looks good. Gravel's in the yard, but he'd say, son, you need to pick up these sticks. You didn't pick up the sticks. It had fallen from the trees. And what my dad, we're paying, getting paid to cut her grass, so to speak. And she would say, he would say, no, son, let's pick up the sticks. And we would haul the sticks away so our yard would look good. And then by the time I'm probably 14 or years old, I'm feeling really good about the quality job that, that I'm doing there. And lo and behold, we would go and we'd walk the yard again. We'd pick up the sticks, we'd make sure all the gravel was in. And then dad would say, son, go get the ladder. And I would say, but dad, well, why, why get a ladder? And he said, well, son, there's leaves on her roof and there's leaves in her gutter and we need to clean her gutter. And by this time, I should have been old enough to have learned the lessons. But I said, dad, we're being paid $1.50 to cut her grass. And he says, no, son. He says, you're not. He goes, you're being paid to take care of her asset. This is the greatest asset she'll ever own. She's worked her whole life to pay for this home. And your job is to exceed her expectations and do a great job with her entire property. So, you know, we, over the years, man, we learned to, to cut our grass, to rake the, the leaves, to pick up the sticks, to clean our gutters. 
for a dollar fifty. But the great news was what we learned was right up the street, Miss Massengale decides she wants us to start doing it. And uh, we learned our lesson and we charged Miss Massengale three dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so we doubled our money on her. So but that was that was the story of Miss Edna. But she was just an amazing lady. And what I learned from that lesson was, you know, dad was teaching us, this is the greatest asset she had. She needs us. She needs us to be there to support her. And she's paying us a wage. And whatever wage we agreed upon, we needed to exceed her expectations. And uh, that's just the way my dad was, just an amazing man, taught just tremendous lessons over his life to us. But Ms. Edna, too, was a, a big part of my life. And I'll never forget Ms. Ms. Edna Norwood. God rest her soul. Wow. Well, I can't imagine. I'm just imagining myself as a as an eight year old, you know, cutting grass and and missing a, a blade, and my dad trying to telling me to to recut the whole lawn. I think I might I might <laughs> lose my mind. Like, yeah, yeah. But, but it sounds like your dad very much. It, that was a very conscious and calculated metaphor for for kind of shaping some of that that work ethic and and kind of a spirit of service in you. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's very fair. I mean, I wouldn't say dad was a perfectionist, but he wanted to make sure that that we did the job right. He would always say, you know, a job worth doing is a job worth doing right. And he wanted us to to do that. So he he instilled that really in 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 me and my two siblings. But yeah, I'll never forget the, the lessons he taught me with Ms. Edna's yard and, and others. Yeah, well, he sounds like a pretty incredible guy. I was, you know, doing a little uh, research and you know, talking to Dave beforehand and, and he was a, a World War II vet, right? And, and, and Dave told me a, a story about a kid that put a pin in a, in a spitball. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad, again, he was raised there in a, in a small town there in Georgia and they lived in the mill village. And of course, you know, kids were very rambunctious back in those days, but in school when he was seven years old, there was a kid back in the day in a classroom put a, put a pin, like a little straight pin inside of a spitball in a class and you know how kids would back in the day shoot spitballs through a straw and this kid shot a pen and it just happened to hit my father in the eye and it blinded him and so from the age of seven on he was completely blind in his right eye as a matter of fact he wore a patch over his eye and if you can imagine the horrors of that wearing a patch but the amazing thing about dad is my dad never complained once about anything. I never heard him complain about anything at all, but he went through uh, his elementary school years and his middle school years and high school years with one eye. He was a phenomenal football player. He played four years of high school football, four years of college football. He was all NGIC, which is the equivalent of being an all-state back in the day, as an offensive guard, defensive tackle. And think about this. He, could, he didn't have a right eye, so he was getting blindsided all the time. You, know, you didn't <laughs> yeah. see him coming. But he was still able to just have a tremendous you know, career in football. He went to, went to college on scholarships and then, of course, was drafted into World War II. And it was there in World War II during basic training camp where his eye got just tremendously infected because it was basically just a, a dead organ there. And uh, they had to remove it and put a prosthetic eye in. But he never talked about it, and uh, most people never knew that he had only had a left eye. Hmm. Wow! And and you mentioned, uh, I remember when we were talking, you you talked a little bit about how your your number one, your father's work ethic himself. Not only that he you know he didn't just talk about it with you and your and your siblings, but I mean he he lived that you know working at the mill and 
And and you mentioned, I think he he continued to work at the mill until he was in his eighties, right? Yeah, he was he was eighty one years old, and I'll never forget. Um, my my mother died years ago. She died young, unfortunately. She uh, developed lung cancer, and she never smoked, but she developed lung cancer and died uh, prematurely in her uh, late fifties. But uh, and Dad had remarried about I don't know ten years later remarried, and I got a phone call one day from um, his his wife Ellen. And she said, Gary, you might want to call your dad. He retired today. And dad worked until his 80s. He was 81 years of age. And I said, Ellen, my goodness, is dad okay? Is he sick? And she goes, no, honey, but you should talk to him because today is his last day. And so that afternoon I called him. He got home from work and I I called him. I said, dad, I said, golly, congratulations. You're 81 years old and you decided to retire. I said, why did you decide to retire now? He goes, well, honey, bunny, I thought I would just uh, maybe look to do something else. I said, but dad, you've worked there all these years. Why now? Are you going to work at Home Depot? Are you going to go get a second job? Because dad always had two jobs or three jobs over the years. And he goes, well, no, I just, um, well, they closed the plant down. <laughs> <laughs> I said, dad, you you didn't retire. I said, uh, you, know, you were laid off. And he goes, yeah, but they gave me two weeks worth of pay. And he was just really proud of that. But yeah, he was the most amazing man. I mean, my father, I never heard him say a bad word about another human being. I mean, I'm not half the man he is. He never smoked, drank, never cursed. He'd hit his thumb with a hammer and say, hound. And my brother and I are sitting there thinking of a lot worse words he could say than hound. But he, as long as I knew him, I mean, he always worked multiple jobs, you know, trying to help make ends meet. Uh, my mother did as well. So it was just had amazing parents. I was very blessed. You know, it's it's amazing, you know, how, you know, obviously what a, what a phenomenal the job they did in, in shaping you. And, and obviously you've, you've learned well, you've carried on the tradition. And I, I mentioned in the intro, I had an opportunity and this was, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago. I actually had your son, Jay, in a, you know, in a group that I happened to be, uh, I happened to be with. And I was, I was telling Sean the story within I don't know, it's probably 35 people in the group. And, and literally within a handful of minutes, Jay was really just standing out as an incredibly quality individual. And, and then the more I got to know him, the more I, you know, I, I just saw the con- congruency and, you know, and, and who he was as a, as an individual and just what a, a genuinely decent human being he was. So I'm curious, Gary, you've, you obviously handed, you know, you, you, you handed to your children what it was that your parents handed to you. Many of us are parents, you know, any, any advice or words of wisdom or, you know, things that, that, you know, you subscribe to that you think, you know, really helped you and Missy and in, in raising the kids? Yeah, I think Missy and I, is, we, we've just had an amazing journey with our children and we both were so congruent in our value system because we're the very same, but we believe with our whole hearts and minds that being a parent is the single greatest honor and responsibility you can have in life. There's no greater calling in life than to be an exceptional parent. And what I mean by exceptional, it's got to be better than good or average or great. I mean, you've, you've got to be exceptional and you've got to give selflessly of yourself and your time because you made a conscious decision to bring this child into the world. And your influence over this child can be positive or negative. And the influence you have will carry on not only with just your child, but their peer group for generations to come. So you have this amazing ability to impact 
several generations by quality thoughts, by the right types of lessons to teach them. So for, for us, it was always easy to, to try to share the, the things in life that were the most important things in life, the values, the, uh, the values, the belief systems and things like that, but also help them to form and shape their own, to challenge them to be their own person at the same time, but also teach them hopefully right from wrong and have them question, you know, learn to question things on their own and think for themselves, so to speak. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, and Jay's such a wonderful, you know, he's, he's such a wonderful gentleman and, and, you know, obviously he, he, he picked that up along the way, you know, and you, you had handed that down from your dad. You know, you, you mentioned to me that your dad, one of the, one of the pieces of wisdom that he gave you, he always had you carry two things. And, and that was something I know you had passed along to the, to the kids as well. What, what was it your dad had you carry? He always told me to carry a handkerchief because you never know when you're going to need it. You could to sneeze or if someone else is crying or something like that, or you cut yourself or, or any number of reasons you would need a handkerchief, but also a pocket knife. So to carry a handkerchief and a pocket knife, and I always do, I always carry a handkerchief and a pocket knife and they always come in handy. And I pass those very things on to, to my children. They should carry those. And then, as you know, Dave, I added a, a third, which was a challenge coin. And the reason I added the challenge coin in there is to challenge. We, I was able to commemorate this challenge coin about five or six years ago, which was really about sort of memorializing how you should live your life in a way. In other words, if you have a common purpose, what would that be? And if you had non-negotiables the way you wanted to live your life, what would those non-negotiables be? And that coin itself would be a constant reminder each and every day to challenge you to be your very, very best. And and so with Jay, for example, I think when you met him, you know, he had a there again, he had a, a handkerchief, he had a pocket knife and a challenge coin. And to this day, he still carries those. So I, I want to ask you, so we had, we had Ryan Hawley, you know, and of course, you know, and Ryan is spoken of you as a mentor and such a great influence on his life. So he was, he was on the show last year and he, he actually mentioned the, the challenge coin to us and, you know, in the course of the conversation. And, and so this was the first time I'd ever heard of the, you know, the idea of a challenge coin. And he was actually kind enough to, to send Sean and I each a challenge coin after the, the podcast. I'm actually holding mine right now. It, you know, on the, so on the front side, you have an American flag and it, it, it says, you know, remember who you are and what you represent. And then on the, on the back side is those, you know, those, those non-negotiables. And, it, you know, it says making a meaningful impact in the lives of others through selfless service. And I, I just, I, I love the idea of the challenge coin. I love the idea that, that the sense of permanence of, of, you know, carrying it with you as a, as an everyday reminder. So where did, where did the idea of the challenge coin come from? How did, how did that come about, Gary? I actually learned of the idea through the military, the military for many years, dating back to world war one actually had a challenge coin and it actually got its name challenge coin because there was an aviation pilot that was captured back during world war one. And he was thrown into a, a concentration camp or to a prison camp. They should, I guess it would be called at the time. And before he had left to, to go overseas to fight the squadron leader in his particular platoon had, 
had commemorated a coin. The coin basically says the name of the, their flying, whatever they call them, uh, the squadron was the, let's just call it the, the Flying Tigers. I'm making that piece up. Mm-hmm. But in it, in it only that it said, you know, where they were from and who they were. Basically, it was sort of an identification that they were part of a team, so to speak. And the pilot was down, his plane was down, he was captured. They took all of his stuff away from him, but they didn't take the challenge coin. He had had that in a little pouch around his neck, and they didn't take that coin away from him. And they said, look, if you were if you were escape, basically, uh, you'll be captured uh, by the French, and the French will probably think you're a spy, and they'll probably kill you. And lo and behold, the story goes, and you can look this up, but the story goes that he, of course, was captured. Um, he escapes. The French then capture him, and they sentence him to death. And he said... I'm an American. I'm an American. Of course, they couldn't understand him. And he said, but I'm an American. They said, where's your proof? And he said, I don't have any proof. And they said, then you must die. And then he realizes he has this coin around his neck and this little pouch. And he tears it off and he pulls out the coin. And he goes, this is who I am. This is my coin. This is my uh, squadron. He goes, I challenge you. I challenge you to contact the Americans to find out I am who I say I am. And the story goes that the day he was supposed to be executed, they walk into a cell and they bring him a bottle of wine instead of an executioner. And they said, we've checked with the Americans and you are who you say you are. And so the challenge coin was born. So the military, they carry challenge coins. And I had a general gave me one many years ago, and I was so impressed by it because it, it seemed to be something that represented them. And so I decided we should have a challenge going to represent who we are. In other words, what are our belief systems? What are our, <clears throat> what is our common purpose as an organization? And so that was commemorated based upon that. So I was influenced by the military to do this. That's such a, that's such a cool story and yeah. such a cool history behind, behind the, the idea of a challenge coin. Yeah. I, I remember when we were talking to Ryan about it and he was kind enough to send us both a, a few challenge coins. I had never heard of the concept before. One other thing that Ryan mentioned that I remember being, I just love the idea of, and I believe he actually pointed to, to you from where it came from, and you mentioned before was non-negotiables. I love this idea of, of non-negotiables. Where did that phrase or, or uh, kind of philosophy come from? That was something, I mean, it's, it really kind of goes back to my childhood, the way the way we were raised, I think, within the, the neighborhood and the family. I mean, there were certain things you you did and you didn't do, right? And, I mean, for example, you, you had to be truthful. I mean, back in the day, I mean, lying was very shameful. I mean, no one ever told a lie, and you would never be caught telling a lie because it was just the, the wrong thing to do. And so I think the whole idea of non-negotiables has been with me my, my whole my whole life and my whole existence to always try to do the right things. Right. And so within the company, when I came up with the the challenge coin, you mentioned on the front, it says, remember who you are and what you represent. The whole challenge there was who are you at your core, right? Who are you, Sean? Who are you, Dave? Who am I, Gary? And for me, I said, I'm Gary Spence. You know, I'm a fun, loving and caring person sharing all of God's gifts with myself and others each and every day. That's who I am at my core. I'm a fun, loving and caring person trying to share as many gifts as I can with others each and every day. So that's where that came from. So never lose sight of who you are, your individuality is. And then on the back side of it, where it says making a meaningful impact in the lives of others through selfless service, it's really what life is all about. Life is about contribution. It's about giving to others selflessly. And so how do you make a meaningful impact in the lives of others? 
It could be you stop and help them change a tire, someone change a tire. It could be someone that's down and out on their luck, you know, giving them a helping hand. It could just be a smile at someone in a grocery store, in a doctor's office that may be having a bad day. But the point is, you can always make a meaningful impact in the lives of others through selflessly serving them, not putting yourself first. So that's why I put those on the coin. And then when the non-negotiables came about, I thought, what are things you must absolutely do to be a part of our team, to, to work here and, and so that you're completely loved and trusted and valued as a member of the team? And, and the four non-negotiables that came to mind were, number one is to operate with integrity, which is to always do the right thing, especially when no one's looking. It's when you walk out of the grocery store and they didn't charge you for that loaf of bread. You walk back in and say, ma'am, I realize you failed to charge me for the loaf of bread. Please allow me to pay for it. It's when you, you know, you walk out and you find you see someone drop money on the sidewalk. You pick it up and you go to them and say, you just dropped this five dollar bill. It's to always do the right thing, especially when no one's looking, because it's just the right thing to do. That's the number one non-negotiable. We want everyone to have that. Number two is to have a sense of urgency about yourself. And we all see this today when you you call someone on the phone and you try to get with them and they don't get back for a day or two days or three days. Typically, when someone has a request, there's a, an urgent nature to it. We should respect that. But I want to I think we should always have an urgency about the things that we do and not be not procrastinate. Number three is to take ownership. I, I really believe this, that. When we hear the phrase, well, that's not my job, or I didn't create that problem, we should never say those things because you might not have created the problem, but the problem is now squarely on my desk. I mean, years ago, I think one of the great presidents said the buck stops here. And that's really what we're saying there is I didn't create the problem. The problem is here. I own it. And the way I'm going to solve this problem is with a heightened sense of urgency and with total integrity. So these become foundational building blocks, you can see as you go through life. And then the fourth non-negotiable is to be a caring professional. And I don't care how good you are at something. If you're like a a fantastic physician, but you've got a horrible bedside manner, you're not going to be in great demand. So to be a caring professional is first, like Stephen Covey says, seek to understand and then be understood. So always reach out and be that caring professional. So those are really the four non-negotiables I feel that, you know, everyone should have to to be exceptional at what they do. Yeah, I, I just, I love that concept of non-negotiables yeah. because I think it's so easy for people to jump to situations where maybe they didn't live up to, you know, one or, or more of those, you know, values that, that you talked about. And it's really easy for people to jump to an excuse or say, well, but there was an extenuating circumstance mm-hmm. here, or I wouldn't have done it if this didn't happen. But the non-negotiables just takes all of those excuses out of the equation and says it, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. This is always what you do. And I, I just love the simplicity of that. Thank you. I, and it seems to work. And I, I love it. And, and all the people that we work with embrace that. And they live our lives that way. And um, I'm very proud of that. Okay. So, Gary, I'm curious, you know, you you grew up, you know, you, you had great influences when you were growing up from your, you know, not only just your parents, but other individuals who were significant in your life, in your life. And 
And they helped instill in you these values and, you know, a, a moral framework, if you will, that, that you just weren't willing to, to, to move away from. Not everybody has that. And so I'm curious, as a leader in an organization, as you bring people into an organization who maybe didn't have those same reference points or that same upbringing or that, you know, the, the, those same influences, how do you go about really instilling that into them? Because it's, you know, on one level, I think it, to have something that you stand for and have a clear picture of who you are and what you're not willing to compromise is, is perhaps the most valuable thing that you can have in life. But I also think about how few people really do possess that. Yeah, I think that's why the to me the selection process is the most important. I mean, we go to great lengths to to interview an awful lot of people before we bring them on board to join the team because in in my mind, when they join our organization, they're joining our family mm-hmm. because we're going to spend as much and many times more times with them than we do our own families on a daily basis. And so the selection process is absolutely everything. During the selection process, you really do have to understand people's core values. You have to understand who they are at their core and what they're looking to accomplish in life. And then you have to ask yourself, do you have the skill set to help them accomplish what they're looking for? And, and how can you do that? So I would say, first and foremost, we want to, to make sure the selection process is right. Then once they're on board, what you have to do is you have to demonstrate daily that you live by these values. There can't be an inconsistency or an incongruency. You can't say one thing and do something else. You have to consistently live. And I will tell you, there have been many people that says, I thought this was too good to be true. But now after being here for two, three, four, five, ten 10 years, it's just amazing how this organization really operates at the highest possible level. And then what happens is they want to become part of that. So they hold themselves to the same standard. And then I would say, you know, the last part of that is for those individuals who do not hold themselves to that standard, or if they violate one of these non-negotiables, they can't work there any longer. They just can't because there again, everyone around you looks to say, well, they talk a game, but they don't play the game because they didn't terminate that person. That person did something egregious and violated the integrity oath, so to speak. And, but yet they're still here. You, you can't do that. You have to absolutely live it. So that's the way I would, that's the way I would uh, position it. Yeah, that congruency is such a is such an important uh, piece of it because, and I think you're a hundred percent right. Is as soon as somebody sees a deviance from that, then that becomes what they use to justify their own behaviors and their own willingness to compromise. Yeah, and also if they see that you allow your standards to slip even slightly, even one day, then they lose a little respect or perhaps even a little trust that you are who you say you are. So you have to maintain that standard. And it's, that's one of the most challenging things is to consistently maintain a standard or increase the standard over a sustained period of time. I'm talking about 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It becomes very difficult, but you have to do that in order for people to always believe you because then they'll say, Wow, this is, it's just the, to me, it's like Cal Ripken playing baseball, right? The Iron Man, he consistently maintained that standard over all those games, over 2000 games. And that's a feat that's rare to achieve. Exactly. Exactly. And when Gary is, you know, when you, st- when you came into Lincoln, it was, 
was the concept of non-negotiables and and selfless service was was that just readily accepted or was that something that you almost had to not just sell to the the people on your team but you had to sell up in the organization as to you know this is you know this is who I am this is what I want my team to stand for and and almost you know lift the elevate lift the organization in that regard yeah well I, I joined Lincoln as you know it was 28 years ago almost 29 years ago so it's been a long time and and I joined in a sales role so I, there none of this existed at the time in terms of non-negotiables L- let me say this though Lincoln itself is an amazing company, such a fine company, and, and it has tremendous uh, shared values. And that was one of the things that attracted me to Lincoln. And Lincoln has always remained true to that. So unbelievably fantastic company with strong values. They didn't have what's called non-negotiables then written out or written down. And I don't want to take too much credit uh, for this over the years, but I think what happened is over the years, as I went from a sales role into a leadership role into, into management and then into what I call leadership. They just developed over time. And to me, they became sort of best practices. And then we eventually memorialized them and just put them down as these are the four non-negotiables. You know, Gary, Dave mentioned early in the conversation, this, this concept of magic moments. And, you know, before we get to number two, I actually, I wanted to reference, which I think this is going to be the first time that We've referenced a House of Representatives resolution. <laughs> I on think the so. Podcast. I think it is. But on February fourth, two thousand, the Georgia House of Representatives passed HR nine three seven, which uh, I'll read a little bit from. It's a resolution rec- recognizing and commending Dexter Shufford and Howard Shufford. Dexter and Howard Shufford are well-known citizens of LaGrange, Georgia, where they have influenced the lives of countless young people and families, and are known as the founders of organized recreational programs for youth. These special brothers were treasured teachers, coaches, mentors, and counselors to young women and men who learned the value of integrity, fairness, discipline, and motivation through participation in recreational programs. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the House of Representatives that the members of this body recognize and commend Dexter and Howard Shufford for their exceptional careers in community recreation and their dedication to the youth of LaGrange and convey their deepest admiration and appreciation. I know that from talking to Dave before you met, you met Howard and Dexter Shoford when you were pretty young. Can you tell us about that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in, in LaGrange, we pronounce it Shuford, right? Shuford, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's in LaGrange. It's funny. You said February 4th, 2000. My birthday is February 5th. That was the day before my birthday. That's really crazy. Uh-huh. But I met Dexter and Howard Shuford. I mean, I'll sit here and cry talking about these two gentlemen. They were my, they were my second fathers. These, outside of my dad, these are the two best men I've ever known in my life. They were absolutely amazing because they gave selflessly of themselves and their lives to help all the kids from the mill villages and the poor neighborhoods. And they taught us how to swim, how to play football, basketball, baseball, track, I mean, you, you name it. They taught us how to do everything. They were the most incredible two brothers you have ever you, you could ever even imagine. And I had the great honor of being able to, to eulogize Mr. Howard at his funeral. And of course, I attended Mr. Dexter's funeral, too. Both lived up until their 90s. And uh, these men are, are two men that I love. I love with all my heart and soul. And I've kept pictures of them on my wall my entire 
my entire life. And the very few Facebook posts I've ever put out there included the Shuford brothers because of their influence, not just on my life, but the lives of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of, of young boys and girls whose lives they touch. But yeah, I met him when I was um, five years old. And Dexter used to come to our schools and he would teach us to, to jump rope. And Dexter was the most phenomenal jump roper I've ever seen in my life. You can watch these boxers like Muhammad Ali jump rope and you can say, wow, that's impressive. Well, Dexter was doing that back in the 1960s, early 1960s. And he was doing doubles and triple jumps and, and all of that. And But Dexter, again, just amazing teaching us basketball and teaching us swimming. He ran the swimming pool for all the kids to learn to swim and really taught life skills. Howard taught the tennis. He taught the softball. He taught the football. And But more importantly, what they taught us were, were good, strong values, life values. If you did something wrong, you know, they would kick you out of the, let's just call it a Y. We called it the Y back in the day. It wasn't a YMCA, but it was like that. And uh, they would kick you out where you couldn't come back. You would lose your privileges and you would have to come back to them and show them some life lesson you've learned for them to allow you back in. And again, they would the most brilliant, wonderful, sweet, honest, decent Christian men you've ever met in your life. So I'm almost drawing a blank because I've got so many fond memories of them. But is there anything special you want to know about? the two of them and how they influenced the kids. Well, I know one of the things you'd mentioned to me, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. I mean, you would, you would, uh, you know, when we were talked a bit about your upbringing, you talked about the mill town and, and, uh, you know, the fact that the, you know, people worked exceptionally, exceptionally hard. You talked about, you know, your, your, your parents, your, you know, your, your grandmother, you know, working double and triple shifts and, you know, and, and those types of things. But one of the things that you mentioned, which I thought was interesting, was how I think it was Howard taught you to play tennis, which is yeah. you know so contrary to a sport you'd think you'd play coming out of a mill town. But you became a very accomplished tennis player as a result of that. So tell us a little bit about you know about that and kind of how that played out for you. Yeah, um, yeah, Mr. Howard, he he believed in me as a kid, and he taught me tennis. And we had we had some good tennis players in the town. And but Howard loved tennis and he would always say things like, Gary, you know, you can be good at this one day. You can go to college on a scholarship one day. And he would teach me his his he would teach me things like quick feet and a slow racket make a good tennis player. And then he would say, Gary, hit it where they ain't. That's good tennis, but poor grammar. (laughs) (laughs) but but yeah he was but i loved him i loved him so much and i wanted to emulate howard shuford and and because he taught me tennis and because he believed in me i did eventually um rise to the ranks to where i won the state championship as a as a high school senior i did get college scholarships to go and play college tennis but i remember because i lived there in in hillside in that area and, and and the truth is guys we were probably upper lower class or maybe really lower, lower, lower middle class, but I would say we're probably upper, lower class. Most of the people that work there, because we worked for pretty much minimum wage, my, both my parents did, and that's why they had multiple jobs. But I wanted to do what Howard Schufer did because he was such an impact in my life. And so I remember I had gotten a, a scholarship to go to college, and I said, Mr. Schufer, I said, when I go to school, I said, when I graduate and I come back, I want you to keep working. He was in his 60s at the time. And I said, will you, will you please keep working until I get back and graduate college? Because 
I want your job. I, I just want to do what you do, Mr. Shuford. And he says, well, Gary, no, I want you to go on and do something bigger than that. Gary, you, you have the ability to do more. And I said, no, but Mr. Shuford, there, there's nothing more than what you've done. I mean, I see how much people love you and I know how much I love you and you get to teach tennis every day. And I said, I really want to do this. And I'll, and he says, Gary, no, he goes, I want you to do more. You can set your mind to it. You can accomplish more. I want you to go out and, and you can do better financially. I said, but it's not about doing better financially, Mr. Shuford. I want to impact lives. And, and he sort of looked at me and he says, Gary, you can't have my job. And I said, sir, he goes, you can't have my job. That job's going to Brian. And he just threw the name. Out. I was like, but Mr. Shuford, I'm a better tennis player than Brian, you know, not really understanding what he was doing. And he says, Gary, he says, I want you to go to school, study. He goes, become a stockbroker, do something that you can do better socioeconomically than I've done. And then you can help other people. And I went off to school and I was sort of devastated by that. And then it, it dawned on me later on that what he really was saying was, son, I don't make very much money doing this, but I love doing it. I mean, I've sacrificed a lot, but I see greater gifts in you and I want you to do more so that you can then help more people, you know, with the, with the abundance that you, that you make in life. And, and the crazy thing, and I share this with Dave, I never even thought about becoming a stockbroker, but later on in life, I did. I did become that because I got all of my securities registrations, which is in effect a stockbroker, and I'm in the retirement business now. So in many ways, subliminally, he, he put me on that path, and I owe so much to him. It's such a wonderful testament, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, you look at the difference that, and you know, boy, I'll tell you, it's it, it, that is one of the things that I think is so sorely missing in our society right now. And I think mm-hmm. there's so many individuals who, you know, they're 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 coming up in environments that are you know are less than ideal, and they they don't have those those role models. They don't have somebody. You know, like, you know, like the Schufer brothers who are, who were, you know, if their if their parents aren't there or aren't engaged and, you know, who are there to make that kind of a difference. But wow, what a difference it can make. Oh. Yeah, it was amazing. And I will tell you this. I those were two men I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to let down in any way. I never wanted those men to be disappointed in me. And just like with my dad, I've, I've tried to always live up to their standards and their expectations. And, uh, you know, I pray to pray that I can can do that. As I said, they both lived into their 90s. Mr. Dexter lived to, to be 98, I believe it was, or 99. And Mr. Howard lived to be about 94. And uh, there again, tens of thousands of kids and lives were touched because of those those two men and uh, their lives were were well lived. Yeah. Well, you know, Gary, looking back on that on their influence on you, were there any, you know, things that you've done from a leadership perspective, either consciously or or maybe even subconsciously that, you know, you learned from them as leaders that you try to now emulate? Yeah, I, I would say, again, I was, a, I was, I actually worked for both of them. I, I worked under Dexter as a lifeguard for several years and I worked under Howard uh, teaching tennis for several years. And what I saw both of those men do is they were uncompromising in their principles. They knew what was right and what was wrong, and they were completely uncompromising there. They also gave honest and direct feedback. You, 
In other words, if you did wrong, you knew you did wrong, but they didn't do it in a, a way where they beat you down. They were they were nice and cordial, but they were strict and they were firm. And you could see it in their eyes and the tone of their voice. And you knew that, boy, I screwed up there. And I think I learned in leadership, one of the things you can do is you can correct people's behavior. You can point things out without berating people, without yelling at people. I never saw them raise their voice ever, but you you can get the point across that I have higher expectations of you and you've not exceeded, you've not met those expectations. And I think I I learned a lot of my demeanor from them uh, as well. Yeah. It's, you know, almost the birth of the the concept of the non-negotiables right there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, you know, two just phenomenal individuals and Lord knows we, we, we need more Howard and Dexters in our, in our world today. Absolutely. So, so Gary, so you were, you know, you're a, a great tennis player. You were, you were a really, really good basketball player too. I, I remember you talking about, and, and then you had an opportunity and this is, to me, this seemed like another one of those, those magic moments in your life where you were, I think you said you were a junior in, in, in high school and you had an opportunity to play your senior year at uh, a local private academy, a private school. And so tell us a little bit about that magic moment in your life and, and, and how that influenced you and, and really the ripple effect of it. Yeah, it was, it, it truly was a magic moment. I mean, it's in those, you know, those moments of decision that your destiny is shaped, if you think about it. So those in that exact moment that where you make a decision is when life changes and everything changes because of that. Uh, and I think that was the magic moment here. Like I say, I, I was a good basketball player. I wasn't a, I wasn't a great basketball player, but I, I had really good success doing it. And I played, I was at the high school, going to the local high school, and they had a very good basketball program, but not as good a tennis program at the high school. At the academy, they had a terrible basketball program, but a very good tennis program. And I, I knew that probably my opportunities to go to college would be better with the tennis scholarship than a basketball scholarship, although I was very fortunate and I was offered both basketball scholarships and tennis scholarships. But so I was contacted at the end of my junior year by the coach at LaGrange Academy, who was just a phenomenal coach and just a tremendous athlete himself. But he asked me would I come out there and play basketball and tennis for the private school. And of course, we lived in the Mill Village and, and financially, I said we were probably at best we really were upper, lower class in terms of socioeconomics, in terms of the money. And I, um, I knew that if I went there, I could probably have a really good opportunity to, to, you know, strengthen my education, but even more importantly, be noticed by some colleges. And so I remember I went home that night when I got a call from the coach. And, and by the way, y'all remember back in the day, these were, you'd be on the telephone, and you'd have a cord that was about 30 feet long. You could walk across the kitchen. <laughs> Pulling that long cord and, and talking, but but I remember I talked to the coach that day on the phone, and then that night when my, my dad and my mother got home from work, we were sitting down having having dinner. My brother was already off; I was the only one in the house because I have an older brother and sister, and they were gone. And I remember talking to mom and dad, and I said, "Guys, I said, mom and dad, I said I have an opportunity to go to Lagrange Academy uh, to play basketball and tennis, and you know, what do you think? I mean, what do you think I should do?" And my mother was very fearful of that because she sort of 
felt like our place in society was there in the mill village and and she was very uncomfortable with with the, the academy situation and so what she said was honey she said, I just I just don't I just don't know I, I just don't think so I, I just don't feel like we belong there uh, I'm just afraid those aren't our kind of people and 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 what she was saying there is that, that she felt like socioeconomically we couldn't go and then she said you know honey we can't afford to send you to school there and I said but but mom they're offering me a, a free scholarship she goes but we can't even afford to buy the books and and I said I understand but they're offering me the books as well and she was just she was really so worried that I was going to get hurt and that was what she eventually told me was I just don't want you to go and get hurt and so I said dad what do you think and dad said he said, well, honey bunny, he would call me honey bunny or sugar booger or something like that. <laughs> but he said, um, hey, just do what you want to do. And and I'm thinking, well, dad, I'm 17. You know, I'm not sure. What <laughs> a little I more do. guidance would be yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, give me some guidance here, man. Please give me some guidance here. And and what it was was, you know, understand dad was born in the mill village and raised in the mill village and had always been there. And and mother came from a very, very poor family as well. Very uncomfortable socioeconomically. I was going to get over there and be hurt because, you know, you don't belong there, son. You belong back in the mill village kind of thing. And I'll never forget, I thought about it long and hard. And I made the decision as a 17-year-old that I was going to go to LaGrange Academy. And I called the coach up. And then I went out and met with the headmaster and signed this little scholarship form that they they offered me. And, and it was funny because doing that was a single best thing that ever happened in my life from that point on, because it did a couple of things. Number one is it, it put me in a different peer group. It surrounded me with, with people that I didn't necessarily know, but it challenged me that I had to step up. I, I, you know, I was, I was a redneck looking kid from the mill village. I actually rode a motorcycle at the time and I wore this onesie, like all the men wore in the mills. And I showed up the first day of school in a onesie and, and boots like they wore in the mill and everybody had on nice clothes. And so I had to learn very quickly to, to maybe I should dress a little bit differently if I can. But the long story short was this. I went there and it became a remarkable experience. The school was very, very good to me. The kids were very, very good to me. I had a remarkable basketball career there. I had a remarkable tennis career there and did receive scholarships. But the, probably the most important thing about it was it was really there that I met this beautiful young girl. I had known her, I'd met her before, but I got to really know her when I went to school there. And the story goes that Missy and I have now been married for 36 years. So, so that magic moment, not only did it shape my destiny in terms of where I went to school on, on scholarship and all of that, but I met Missy, and because of that, we have these three wonderful children. We have these three amazing grandchildren. And so my destiny was shaped in that moment of decision where I chose to go to LaGrange Academy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's I, I remember when I was in college in a psychology class, I think it was F. Scott Peck had written a book and, and he talked about the butterfly effect and how, you know, how one decision, you know, leads your, can, you know, opens up all of these, you know, all these different opportunities and, and, you know, changes so much for us. So I'm curious, Gary, so you, you know, you, you pick up from the public high school and, and you're, you now you're in the, you know, the, the private Academy. And, and so to your point earlier, I mean, you're, you you grew up in a 
in an environment that was so vastly different, likely than most of the kids who were, you know, who went to the private academy. And you can, I mean, kids can be cruel. They, you know, they, 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 you know, when somebody's different or, you know, they don't fit in, they can, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll pick on the kids that don't fit in. And so how did you, you know, how was that experience? You said you, you know, you drove up on a motorcycle and, and, you know, you've got your, your, your onesie overalls on and your boots. And how did the, how did the kids receive you when you went there? You know, it's, it's funny uh, there. And there was also a time, think about it. That was in the seventies <clears throat> in like 1977, 78 in that, in that time frame. you know, a lot of the kids had long hair. There were, as you remember back in the day, that was just sort of a, you know, free, you know, yeah. I don't know. It just, it's it, it just, it was a kind of a crazy time back, back in those days. There was, there was obviously a lot of drugs back in that day, uh, like uh, marijuana and stuff was, was big then. And I didn't do any of that stuff because I was just uh, matter of fact, I had very short hair, very short cropped hair and, and, and never did drugs or anything like that. And so I walked into this environment, but I think what really played well for me was number one, was the way I was taught to always treat other people. I treated them with, with respect. And I never compromised my own principles at the same time. But also being a good athlete, I think, really helped a lot. And when they saw that I was able to come in and, and excel athletically, both at, at basketball and tennis, also I was able to excel in the classroom. I think I instantly earned the respect of other people. They realized I wasn't going to be a follower. I was going to be a leader. I just wasn't going to follow them and their crowd and any, any things they were doing. And what was amazing is it was in very short order that, you know, I was accepted very, very well. And, and more and more people got short haircuts and, <laughs> and uh, we had a phenomenal basketball season. We ended up going to the state championship that year. And uh, we did lose a state championship game, which still haunts me to this day. But, uh, <laughs> some scars never leave. <laughs> yeah, some scars never leave. But uh, no, it was, uh, again, I look back on it. It was just, it was an amazing time, but it, it, it is. I, I've seen a lot of kids being treated cruelly because they weren't able to fit in. And for those kids who, they try to morph and change to fit in. Those are the ones that never fit in. Instead of being a leader, don't be a follower, be who you are at your core. And people will respect that. And I think that's what happened is I was respected for being uh, myself, authentic and genuine. And I was the best me I could possibly be. So how did that play out on the, I mean, you, you, so you, you mentioned that the basketball team, you know, really wasn't a, a particularly good basketball team when you came on to it. And yet, you know, you, you, you end up going there and that year the, the team goes to the state championship. So, I mean, obviously a lot had to change and, you know, from, from one year to the next to, to, to move a team to, to that level. So how did that, how did it play out on the basketball team? Yeah, they, we went from the, the year before I got there, I think they won five ball games. I think the year I was there and I'd have to go back and look at the record. I think we won close to 25 ball games that, that year. Uh, we went to the state championship game, as I said before, and and it was just it was just an amazing ride. I think first of all, we we had a coach who really really wanted to achieve, but a lot of the kids didn't. And I was one of only two seniors on that that ball team. Uh, all the other kids were underclassmen. We had freshmen and sophomore, a lot of a lot of sophomores on the team, and a couple of juniors on the team as well. And I think what happened is people started realizing that uh, there was a desire there. And, and I, listen, I can't take credit for all of it, but I know this. I said, guys, I came here. I came here to win. OK, I've, I've got plans and my plans were I wanted to go to college, either on a basketball or tennis scholarship. So I don't have time for all the other 
tomfoolery. And if you're going to do shenanigans, and and there were people, as you know, in, in, in any sport that, for example, would smoke dope. What I just said was, guys, here's the deal. If you smoke dope, do it after the season. You're not going to do it now because we need to play together to win. And what was funny is everybody just sort of fell in together. And and there were only probably a couple of guys on the team that were, were going down that path of uh, doing things they shouldn't be doing. Everybody pulled together and they realized, they started believing, gosh, we can win. Because before it was sort of a joke. And so I think it just, if you can help be that tipping point where people do both start believing that, while we can be more than we are, we can be better than we are. And I think that that's really what happened there. And the school got behind it. People started believing. Parents started believing. And next thing you know, what we made it all the way to the state finals. You know, it's it's interesting. I'm thinking about that example. And I'm also thinking about what you, you know, as you talk about your team at Lincoln. And I think I think that what people want is you know people want to belong to something they want to they want to feel that sense of purpose they want to you know they they they, they want to move to a different standard than you know maybe they they've moved to before but they just they just don't know how or maybe to your point they never had that you know that tipping point or that example or 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 even anybody who ever set that expectation for them but when when somebody does it's it's incredible how differently you know people and teams can move. Yeah, and I believe that's what leadership is at its core. It's challenging us to be. It's challenging yourself first and foremost, but everyone else to be the very very best they can possibly be at every given moment. That we can achieve more. We can achieve. There's nothing we can't achieve if we truly believe in it. But we've got to work towards it and work for it. And we're only as weak, right? Or only as strong as our weakest link in that chain. And so. What I wanted to do is get rid of that weak link, whoever they were. You always want to call off that weak link. And if you have a cancer on the team that's, uh, you know, a pouty, crybaby, whatever, you want to get rid of them because you don't want that that cancer to spread. And and then other people that start believing and buying in. And I think that's been the, I think that's the success of any any great leader. I think in life is when they challenge themselves first and foremost. And then they challenge others and they're honest enough with others to say, you're not being your best. You know, it's, you look at so many, so many managers out there, you know, at all levels of organizations and they, you know, they, they get so lost in tactics and strategies and, and, you know, and objectives and all those kinds of things. But the critical piece that they, they, they miss is exactly what you said, Gary. It's the beliefs. It's you know you 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 won't be able to consistently execute upon the strategies if the beliefs aren't where they need to be in the right place to begin with. No, I think you're right. I think you're spot on, Gary. I, you know, I'd love to uh, before we, we move on to uh, our fourth magic moment here. I'd love to dig in a little bit more to the the decision for you to actually go to the private academy. You talked a little bit about it, but you know, what was it that pushed you kind of over the edge and, and committed, you know, to commit to attending that, that private academy? Because there's a lot of, you know, I would imagine as a 17-year-old kid, there's a lot of reasons not to do that. You know, one of a big one being that's a, it's a big change, you know, your last year of, of high school. I'm, that's, that's scary. And your mom has hesitations. What was it that, that pushed you over the edge and, and, you know, made you kind of chart this new path? 
Yeah, I really believe that it's, it's probably kind of a, a, a deep answer here, but, but growing up in the Mill Village, I mean, it was the greatest place in the world to grow up because it was, you know, it's a loving environment. It was tough. I mean, everyone there worked and they worked in the mill, but there was a lot of, how do I say this, limiting beliefs, I think, that were imposed on us. I mean, for example, I'll never forget my grandmother, she worked in the cotton mill. She lived right next door to us. She lived at 417 Jefferson Street, and we lived at 419 Jefferson Street. And she worked in that cotton mill for 45 years, perfect attendance, never missed a day of work. Wow. And she had a massive heart attack at the age of 65, and she wasn't able to continue working. And that devastated her. And, and, but, she, but then she lived on $267 a month. Social Security for the remainder of her life, the next 18 years, if you can imagine that. But grandmother was sort of the matriarch of the family, and she, dad's work ethic came from her. She was tough, and she worked so hard, and she worked double shifts and all those things. But one of the things that grandmother did was she put in everybody's mind a limitation, and she successfully did it, you know, with my dad. I think my dad could have accomplished so much more in life had it not been for uh, grandmother saying, you know, it's time for you to come home and go to work in the mill and, and support the family. And I, I watched her do that. And I'll, I'll even remember with me, she was able to do that by, I met Mr. Calloway, who was the owner of the mill. He was the guy that owned the mill. And he had about eight mills there, and he eventually sold out to Roger Milliken of, of Milliken and Company. And I'll never forget, grandmother said, well, you didn't you didn't look him in the eye, did you? And I said, ma'am, she goes, well, and you, you didn't shake his hand. You didn't speak to Mr. Calloway. We're just we're just mill workers. He, he owns the mill. Hmm. And it was almost like we need to know our place. And my whole life, I grew up being told that this is your place. But at the same time, I grew up in a Christian household and we went to church every Sunday and, and, and I was being taught that, you know, you're created in the eyes of God, right? All people are, are equal in the eyes of God. You're created in God's image. So why are we just mill workers when other people are not? And, and it was sort of confusing. And, and I watched a lot of, I watched a lot of people with incredibly high potential hold themselves back. And I saw myself going down that same path if I didn't make that choice. And even though it was a very difficult choice, because again, understand, I went to public school from kindergarten all the way through 11th grade. So all of, all of my friends were there. And for me to leave and go to the private school was a really big deal. It was a really big deal to me. It was a really big deal to them. They couldn't believe that I did it. But I think what I was trying to do is I was I was trying to see if I couldn't create a better a better me. In other words, a better I, I would always say this on our family tree. I wanted to put a new branch on it. Yeah. And I was so proud of our family tree. The roots are strong. They're a very, very good family. But at the same time, from a socioeconomic level, we were never able to quite achieve the things in life that uh, I, I would have loved to have seen mom and dad be able to achieve or grandmother or, or some of the others. And so I think that's what sort of drove me is also the, the doubts that were there that, you know, you're not good enough to go and do that. And I think for, for whatever reason, psychologically, that drove me, challenged me to push myself. 
So I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly, but I, I do know this. For some strange reason, and my brother and I have talked about this, there was this belief in me that I could do anything if I really set my mind to it. And that was one of the things I chose to set my mind to. Do you think it was the was it Howard and Dexter's influence that you know where you were you you discovered that in yourself through sports and through you know your your time with them and and then you were just able to carry that over and in because that's a huge just you know I think as a seventeen year old to to be able to reconcile those those two vastly divergent beliefs and say. You know, I can get locked into this mentality of, you know, this is who I am. This is who my family has been. And this is, you know, all I'll ever be to, I can, you know, I can be more than this. I can, you know, I can be whatever, whatever I choose to be. That's a, that's a, a huge shift that I don't know if a lot of people make in life. Yeah. Without question, Howard and Dexter had an influence. I would say probably Howard, even more so than Dexter had an influence in that. Just saying that they believed in me. They believed I could do more. And, and he would actually, he would cite an example of uh, one gentleman that was raised in our mill village that went on and went to college on a tennis scholarship. And then he went on and became a very successful corporate citizen. And he would say, you know, you can do something like that. And which really put that belief in me that I could do it. I didn't know how I would do it, but I think he did definitely influence that uh, in my thinking. But so, yeah, I was just just very blessed. I, but there again, there's so many different influences in my life. I think I look back on, I mean, heavens, like I say, my mom and dad and my grandmother. And and I would watch the way people treated some versus others. And I would I would question why. Why can't I do that? Why can't I achieve that? And for some reason that drove me. And I, I can't explain it any, any better than that. Yeah, no, I think that that answers that question perfectly. And it, it seems like whether it was, you know, consciously or subconsciously, the, you know, the step to the private academy was a major step in that direction to becoming more than, than, you know, just the mill worker. It, it, it was. And I, I kind of end up by saying this, the thing that, that, that absolutely kills me, and I, and I mean this sincerely, is I've, I've been able to stay in touch with a lot of our friends from back home growing up. And it breaks my heart when I see the there were so there were so many kids with so much potential that never achieved it because they didn't they didn't believe they could achieve it and i i can't tell you why i took the leap of faith i mean i could have failed and i, I have failed miserably right in life i mean i'm sure we've we've all had our failures but it breaks my heart when i look back and i see some of those kids stayed there stay and they went to work in the mill right after high school and, and some of them didn't make it some were tremendous ball players that ended up getting mixed up and substance abuse, et cetera, and they've they no longer are with us. You know, they've they passed away and they just made bad choices in life. So there again, I was I've been very blessed in life to have some good mentors that 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 taught me right from wrong. Yeah. Well I, you know and I, I kind of I wanted to talk about the another quote unquote magic moment, you know, which is, is along similar lines of, you know, kind of a next step in your your career path and trajectory you go to a fraternity brother's wedding and you met an executive from Lincoln. Can you give us a little bit of context of where you were at that point in time and in your career and, and what meeting that exec did for you? 
Yeah, exactly. Missy and I had been married for, I don't know, a couple of years then. I'm thinking back on it. We'd probably been married for, oh gosh, six or seven years, I guess, at the time. And we had we had two children at the time. So we were, I was selling insurance, struggling. You know, I was I was a reasonably good salesman, but not that good because we were we were struggling trying to make ends meet with two kids. And it was tough, man. It was really, really tough. And I remember I went to a fraternity brother's wedding. It was in Atlanta at a, a really nice country club up there in Atlanta. And I remember we pulled into the parking lot. And at the time I was driving a, a blue Buick. I can't remember what it was called. Maybe a LeSabre back in the day. I think I was driving like a 65-year-old guy's car when I'm, you know, <laughs> 30. So, but we pulled into this country club and, you know, you're, you're a little bit, you know, excited to be at this country, big fancy country club, but also a little bit nervous because you're pulling in this little Buick. So I didn't, obviously didn't valet. But so we're about to get out of the car and right next to me pulls in this big old Mercedes, big, beautiful Mercedes. I think it was gold at the time. And uh, Missy and I get out of the car and begin to walk and right next to us, big guy dressed in a really, really nice suit and, and his really, really attractive wife, uh, blonde, get out of the car there and 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 he's I said, hey, how you doing? He goes, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing good. He goes, are you here for for the wedding? I said, absolutely. And I introduced myself and he introduced myself, his self. And, and I said, well, I'm a fraternity brother of the guy getting married here. And he said, I am, too. But I'm about 10 years earlier. And he, and he said, so what do you do for a living? I said, well, I, I sell insurance. He goes, well, I do, too. And I work for Lincoln National Corporation, which is, of course, Lincoln Financial Group. And he pulls out a card and he goes, uh, we ought to talk about this. He goes, I'm always looking for good people. And he gives me his business card. As we're walking into the, the, the wedding reception at the country club. Now, what impressed me about him was, number one, he was incredibly well-dressed, right? Number two, he was well-spoken, very, very kind. And obviously, he had done, done well in, in the business. And so I, um, I took the car to put it in my pocket and we went to the wedding and then we went back and, and I didn't do anything with it, didn't stay in touch with him or anything like that. But there was something about that initial contact really impressed me that said, you know, this is a guy that's, that's done very well. And, and so I'm still living in LaGrange at the time. And I realized that in, ever, in order for me to ever really be successful, I'm going to have to leave LaGrange just simply because... I think too many factors there, right? We, we hold ourselves back. They say you'll never be a prophet in your own land. I, I, there was a limitation to, to success that I could possibly or potentially have there for a variety of reasons. And, and many of those were probably self-imposed. And so one day I saw his card and I just picked up the card and I gave him a call out of the blue. And I introduced myself. He goes, yeah, I remember you. And and I said, uh, are you still interested in you know, interviewing people? And I said, I'd love to come and talk to you about what it's like outside of LaGrange to be in the insurance field. And, and long story short, we got together, we, we met, and he really convinced me that I had a future. And there again, he believed in me. He said, you know, I know you don't have a natural market here in the Atlanta area, but I believe that you could come here with your, with your personality and your work ethic you know, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But I think in three to five years, you can you can make a go of this. And fortunately, I've got the most supportive wife in the world. Missy has just been an amazing partner and and my best friend for, for life now. And, and she said, you know, let's do it. Let's give it a shot. And uh, we did. But that magic moment was, <clears throat> I mean, I'll never forget him pulling up next to me in that big old Mercedes next to my little little Buick. 
and walking in together. And that moment um, for me to make that choice that there's something about this guy that I like. There's something about this guy that I trust enough to call one day. And I kept his card there again. That, that goes back as a magic moment. And uh, and joining Lincoln, it, it, it wasn't easy. He was exactly right. It was very tough for the first three to five years. Uh, maybe even the first seven years were very, very tough. But it was a blessing in disguise, and that ultimately led me to where I am today. So, Gary, let me ask, because, you know, obviously the insurance business is not an easy business to start out in, particularly when you're coming in and you don't have a, you know, a natural market or a lot of relationships and those types of things that, that you can you can leverage in the early phases to begin to, you know, build up your book of business. How did you stay? What kept you focused and kept you positive and and kept you willing to pay those dues through those, you know, five, six, seven lean years? Well, you know, you hear people succeed out of either one of two ways, right? Either through motivation or desperation. And I think <laughs> I think I had both going for me. We were we were desperate because in '92 our third child was born, and we had made a conscious effort for Missy to stay home and raise the children because that's the single most important job in the household is to raise the, the children. And so we were living off one income, so there was motivation and desperation there. I think I think part of it was. You know, and I, I, there, a mind shift went off in my my mind, in my head, probably about the third year in, because I was really struggling. I was really struggling because I was trying to sell people a product. And I didn't realize that I was doing it all wrong. Mm-hmm. Because you should never sell anything. You should allow people to buy. You should educate people on what the options are and how it can improve the quality of their life. But I, I wasn't doing that. I was like, you need to buy this life insurance and here's, here's, here are the benefits to it. And I'll never forget, I was dealing with this, this one guy and it was in November and Missy and I were about to uh, go into the holiday season. And every year we would drive down to Louisiana to see her family. She had extended family down there and it was always a long drive. And then of course we had December coming up and it had been a really rough year, guys. I, I didn't have enough money to buy Christmas gifts. I didn't really have enough money for us to make the trip down for Thanksgiving to see her grandmother. But we were about to do this. And I went in and met with this, this guy. It was going to be a really big life insurance policy on him and one on his son. And I'll never forget, I went in there and I shared with him all the reasons why he needed to do it. And he just said, well, Gary, thank you, but I don't think so. I don't think I, I need it right now. And, and I realized I, I went home and I, I was in my car and I was driving home and I, I felt like, man, I'm the biggest loser in the world, guys. I am such a loser. I can't feed my family. I can't provide for my wife and children the way I need to provide for them. I can't even sell this guy life insurance. And it was almost as if this thought went off of my head. It was like a voice went off of my head and it says, I, 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 me, me, me. Mm-hmm. All I've said is I can't. I'm the biggest loser. I can't sell life insurance. Yeah, I can't provide for my family. It was all about me. And the voice then said, you said you got into this business to begin with so that no one ever went through what your grandmother or your mom and dad went through. Mom and dad, they, they, she worked in that cotton mill, as I said, 45 years, perfect attendance. She had no retirement plan. She had no life insurance. My dad worked in that, that mill for many, many years. He never really had a retirement plan at all in the mill. They just didn't implement it back in the day. And uh, he had the little life insurance, like $1,500 worth of life insurance that the guy came by and 
put a little thing on a nail by your door and collected, you know, 75 cents every week. I think they called them debit agents back in the day. But my point is no one came into our, our neighborhood to help educate the, the mill people on financial acumen or, or all that. And, and I had always said, I'm going to get into this business to help those people like grandmother, mom, and dad. But yet I found myself just trying to sell a product to make money. Anyway, when that light bulb went off in my head, I literally went home. I got on the phone and I called back the guy I just met with. And I said, look, you don't need to buy life insurance right now. Your, your policy is good for the next two years. But in the next two years, you will have an age band increase. and It will cost you more. Um, but here are the things you want to consider on the other is. And I talked about some other reasons you might want to consider. And I said, but that's it. I just want you to know that there's no need for you to purchase this right now. And I hung up and I still felt like the biggest loser because I had, didn't make the sale. Uh, I went down to Thanksgiving and then we came back. And uh, when I got back, I had a, a message waiting on me from the gentleman I tried to sell life insurance to. And I, I called him up on the phone and, and I said, yes, sir. And he says, I've been thinking about what you said. He goes, you were very honest with me in that last conversation. And he says, you told me I didn't have to buy, but you also gave me some really compelling reasons why it would be a good idea for me to consider. And he goes, I want you to come by and I want you to pick up this check and I'm going to buy one on myself and on my son. And that was the single largest sale I had ever made in my life. And that took care of our Christmas and paid our rent and everything else. But what it meant to me was this. I got away from selling. From that point on, I said, you got to make a meaningful impact in the lives of others through selfless service. I did it for the right reasons to help him and his family instead of the wrong reasons, which were to help me and to put money in my pocket. And that was sort of beginning of my upward trajectory. After that, I never sold again. I would just educate and share things and try to be as honest as possible and let them make an informed decision. And that's sort of was the beginning of my career with Lincoln. Wow. Yeah. I mean, well, it, it sounds like obviously you had the the motivation and desperation early on, but really what what clicked for you and and made made you so effective was that philosophy of selfless service. And I think that's so true, particularly now. I think it's I think it's always been true, but it seems to be more and more that people people always will appreciate just being honest with hey, especially you know if if you have something that they have every reason to think that you're going to try to convince them to do this and, and you come out and say, hey, no, this, you might not need this, but here's some things to think about. I think you just buy yourself so much credibility with people that, you know, obviously worked for, for that gentleman and, and his son. But, you know, even if he hadn't necessarily bought that, I'm sure, you know, he would have come back when he did need it or he would have referred somebody to you when he did just because of that, that philosophy of selfless service. You are exactly right. I mean, as a matter of fact, I mean, that's when the law of reciprocity really takes over. I mean, you don't give to receive, but the more you give, the more you receive. So give out of goodness, give to help other people selflessly. And then to your point, exactly, they start referring business back to you. And then if you give to those people selflessly, they refer people to you. And then pretty soon you've actually built the successful and sustainable business model all through helping others. And that's really the, I think the magic sauce, if there is one, it's all about giving selflessly to others. Yeah. That's such a, it's such a wonderful question to, to ask ourselves in, in, in every aspect of our lives, whether it's in, 
you know, interacting with our, our spouses, whether it's in, you know, at, at work and, you know, looking at the, the individuals that we roll up to in the organization and asking, you know, how can I, you know, what is it they're looking to accomplish and how can I help them? Whether we're working with a client and, and you know, and really taking the time to your point earlier and coming to understand their world and understanding their challenges, understanding their fears and their concerns and, and in providing advice and insights that that really help them and there's so many opportunities all around us but so many people to your point i think gary they you know they're they're just so myopically focused on what's in it for them and what are they looking to accomplish and you know that they absolutely just miss that point yeah i think you're exactly right well, Gary, we want to be respectful of your time, but you know, before we wrap up our, our conversation today, I just wanted to ask, you know, if, if there was one thing that you would want people to remember from this conversation today, what would that be? Yeah, I'd like to begin by saying that life is about contribution. It really is. It's about contributing to the success of others. By doing that, it doesn't mean to let people walk all over you and put yourself last. What it means is how can you consistently help other people in their lives? And it's funny because I'll hear people say to me, well, Gary, you don't know how bad you know I've had it and how tough it's been. And the truth of the matter is we've all had really bad experiences in life. But I had this really unique philosophy there. I don't believe there's anything bad in life. I don't think anything at all is bad as long as you take that experience and you learn from it. You learn something positive because after going through an experience that's not pleasant, it may not have felt good for you, but perhaps it is good for you and perhaps it is good for others. And perhaps it serves the greater good because if we can learn from those experiences and then share those with others so they don't make the same mistakes perhaps that we did. That's what I'd, I'd like for people to understand is, is Sadly, we, we seem to get in this victim mentality all the time. Well, I, my life's been worse than your life. No, the truth is life is such an amazing blessing, and we live in such an amazing time right now. And so I think what we need to do is embrace the, the, the phenomenal world that we live in, but we have to challenge ourselves to live by a higher standard each day and each and every day at what we do. So I would challenge everyone to look at their own life and look at their own non-negotiables. What are the non-negotiables of their life? And for me, I've shared my four, right? For me, it begins with integrity. You have to have that to start. And you have to have a heightened sense of urgency. You have to take ownership. And then you have to be that caring professional. And I would just encourage everyone to really examine their own life. What's made them so special? Because, by the way, guys, my life is, is, is no more special than anyone else's life on this earth. It's just that I've tried to take time to reflect upon those magic moments. And there are so many of them that have shifted and, and changed my life in a positive trajectory. So I would just challenge everyone to do some reflection and to live life and, and love one another. So that's kind of the way I would, I don't know if I answered your question, but I think that's what I'd like to say. I think you answered that and more. Mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation today. Indeed. Gary, thank you so much for sharing some time and a whole lot of wisdom with ourselves and and, and with the audience today. Just uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you both. And it's been an honor to spend time with you. 
The Motivational Intelligence Podcast is produced by the team at Two Logical. Two Logical is an international corporate training firm and the world's leading expert in motivational intelligence, which is the ability to understand, manage, and change the motives people have. Two Logical offers over 30 different keynotes, workshops, and full training courses to small, medium, and large Fortune 500 companies in 53 countries, a lot of which you're probably familiar with. Advisor, Bank of America, GE, Constellation Brands, P&G, and more. All solutions are completely customized and the feedback from these sessions will blow your mind. If you have any training or speaking needs or just want to say hey, head over to 2logical.com.